Welcome to the Blaney's podcast. Today we have Lou Brzezinski joining us on the podcast. My name is Chad Kopach. Uh, I'm a partner at the at the firm and a member of the firm's commercial litigation group. Mr. Brzezinski, welcome to the podcast. Uh, call me Lou, Chad. Thanks, Lou. Uh, we're going to talk about the target insolvency. Uh, if I can just give a little bit of background, though, before we do start, um, I think we can go back to 1775 when the U.S. first invaded Canada, the U.S. in one form or another. Uh, didn't turn out very well for them. They gave it another shot in the War of 1812, also ended in disaster. Um, we're fast-forwarding about 200 years now. Uh, Target arrived on our doorstep. In March of 2013, they started opening stores. Uh, the full-scale invasion was on shortly thereafter, and they had about 130 stores, give or take, uh, as of the start of 2015. But like the invasions of two centuries ago, this uh, is also in the middle of ending in failure. They initiated CCAA proceedings in January of this year, and that's where we're going to pick up. I've got a couple of topics or a couple of areas of interest that I'm going to ask you about. The first is... I think we all know now from reading the newspaper and, and well, seeing your name in print that Target chose CCAA protection instead of a bankruptcy. There's been some talk about you know, maybe this wasn't the proper procedure uh, and they ought to have gone uh, the, the bankruptcy route. Can you talk a little bit about the two, uh, the two areas, why it looks like Target chose the CCAA over the uh, Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act in, in Canada? There's been a lot of controversy around the uh, the protection given to Target by the courts. Uh, most, um, many lawyers believe that the appropriate uh, protection should have been under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. The purpose of the uh, Companies Creditors Arrangement Act, or as we often refer to it as the Double C Double A, is to provide a restructuring mechanism for a large corporation. The minimum amount of debt uh, prescribed under the statute is five million dollars. And the key word here is restructuring. CCAA was meant to allow corporations to remain in existence, perhaps downsized, perhaps changed in the way it operates or in the number of employees, but nonetheless continue to operate uh, as, a, uh, as an entity in Canada. Target, however, had no such intention when it sought protection from the courts. Its purpose uh, was at the outset, and as it is throughout, a simple liquidation of all its assets, a sale of all of its inventory, a sale of all of its leases, a sale of all of its fixtures. So the debate was whether or not this kind of liquidation should be part of a CCA order. Now, Mr. Justice Morowitz wrestled with that problem and came to the conclusion that the CCAA was flexible enough to allow a liquidation scenario and could be custom crafted into allowing that statute to be used in this way. A lot of commentators disagree, but it is what it is. I think we've seen the CCAA procedure used as a liquidation uh, mechanism, but as a sort of a second step after the um, monitor has tried to have the business emerge following the the procedure, no buyers or insufficient uh, offers, quantum uh, of offers to, to to come out of the, the proceeding, and it turns into a liquidation. I think uh, Comstock comes to mind. Yeah, Comstock and Nortel was another one that started off in good faith as a restructuring but ended up as a liquidation. Uh, as far as I know, Target is the only one that started and, and, and is going to end as a liquidation. 
And what does that mean for unsecured creditors? Well, the big issue, of course, is for the 30-day suppliers of goods uh, to uh, target. Uh, if, this had been, if this had proceeded under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, the suppliers of 30-day goods would have had the right to repossess those goods, of course, subject to certain restrictive terms and conditions. But by choosing the CCAA, uh, Target essentially eliminated or tries to eliminate those rights. That's one of the big consequences. Uh, for the unsecured creditors, it's basically wait until there is a liquidation, there is a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and then divide it up amongst the unsecured creditors. And can you just tell me, 30-day goods, what does that mean? Those are goods that are delivered, shipped, and in the possession of the debtor within 30 days of the date of the insolvency. All right, and so those would have been in play for, again, with certain restrictions, those would have been in play for the unsecured creditors to take back had this matter not been a CCAA and had it, had it proceeded as an insolvency. That's correct. And we understand now uh, from the monitor that the amount of goods that were shipped and delivered in that 30-day period was uh, over $100 million. Okay. The second set of questions that I have for you, Lou, relates to this intercompany debt that we've seen a lot about in the news recently. Can you explain what this is and what its impact is to the unsecured creditors? When Target Corporation set up its operations in Canada, it divided its operations into uh, two divisions uh, with respect to the stores. There was the stores itself and all the employees that uh, executed the uh, whatever Target does at its stores. And the second division uh, dealt with the ownership of the fixtures and the costs related to the fixturing of the stores. Uh, the division that owned those fixtures was called Target Canada Propco LLP. And what it does is it charges itself or Target Canada rent or payments for the value and amount spent on the fixturing of those stores. And that value is a complicated formula based upon present value of fixturing costs um, with respect to all 133 stores. And the amount that came in at the end of the day was $1.9 billion. So what does this mean to the unsecured creditors? Well, it means that their debt has been significantly diluted and and swamped, if you wish, by Target itself. So it's of major consequence to the the unsecured creditors. Uh, the, The recovery that we anticipated... Uh, based upon the projections of the monitor and the sale of the leases was anywhere between 70 to 95 cents on the dollar without the intercompany debt. With the intercompany debt in place, it's now pennies on the dollar. So it's a huge swing. Your name has been in the news recently, in the last several days, uh, regarding putting the, uh, the target's feet to the fire uh, a little bit on, on, on a list of questions uh, regarding the decision to seek CCAA protection. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the nature of the questions. What questions were you uh, looking to have answered? There were two fundamental sets of, of questions we wanted to answer. The first one related to 30-day goods, the amount of 30-day goods that were ordered and shipped, when were they ordered, and all the, the logistics surrounding the sale of the 30-day goods. And the other set of questions related to when did Target know that it was going to seek and obtain Uh, bankruptcy protection or any other kind of uh, protection, either under the BIA or the CCAA. Uh, And we were asking that so that we would know at what point in time Target, we could reasonably say that Target knew that the goods they ordered would not be paid for. 
so I'm going to talk a little bit about what the responses were because those came in uh, fairly recently as right. of the date of the recording of this podcast. Um, first of all, uh, on the 30-day goods issue, what were the responses generally um, on, on that on that point? We initially had presented the theory that Target had intentionally, if you wish, pumped up the 30-day goods and had increased its ordering uh, from previous years so that they would have a rich stock of inventory from which they ultimately now could pay their own debt. The, uh, the, the answers to the questions were actually a little contradictory. They, they say that this was um, actually lower than normal ordering at, in, in one part of the questions, but in the other part of the uh, answers, they talk about wanting to uh, compensate for their empty shelves. Uh, and they spoke about the fact that Target had notoriously been known as a company that had a lot of empty shelves with no product on it. And they wanted to correct that situation for the Black uh, Friday of 2014 and for the Christmas season of 2014. And they also wanted to start off the 2015 se season with a, with a real swing. So they actually said they intensified the amount of inventory that they ordered during that period of time from the year before. In addition, they said that they opened up nine new stores during that period of time. So when you look at that last series of answers, it's clear that Target did increase its uh, ordering uh, from the year before. Based on that, you'd conclude that they only came to the decision that they'd be initiating insolvency uh, proceedings shortly before Christmas or shortly after. So what did the answers say about the, about the timing, about when they knew that they would be going down one bankruptcy road or another? You know, it's, it's interesting because the, quest, the answers to the questions give us a wide array of uh, different, uh, different scenarios. Apparently, according to the answers, Target's in-house counsel first suggested bankruptcy to them in the summer of 2014. Um, thereafter followed a series of meetings with Oslers, the, uh, the law firm of record for Target in the insolvency in September and October. Um, the monitor and uh, Target's law firm, Oslers, actually started to begin working on the papers that would uh, ultimately lead to the filing in November, uh, in the early part of November. So I think it's fairly clear that between September and November, the decision had been made at Target to exit Canada. So we believe, the suppliers believe, that when Target placed orders any time after November 2014, Target knew that these goods would not be paid for and that it would form part of the inventory available uh, and the liquidation. So the practical effect of choosing the CCAA over the BIA procedure for the 30-day goods is that the 30-day goods are then sold and the money is not used to pay the suppliers, but is instead used to pay the debt in, as a whole. The greatest part of that debt, of course, is Target's own debt. We, we've come to sort of in real time now, uh, end of March uh, 2015, and the last two areas that I want to talk about or the last two issues that I want to talk about, I think, are where do we go from here? You and I have, have discussed uh, offline um, two issues that, that could come up, um, two concepts that, that could be used, two tools uh, in the bankruptcy court's uh, arsenal. They're equitable subordination and substantive consolidation. So we'll, uh, if we could talk about the first issue first, uh, equitable subordination. I want to know what is this and what will it let the court do? Well, the reason that we're looking for these two legal concepts is essentially to deprioritize the uh, target debt 
uh, so that it ranks behind that of the other unsecured creditors. The notion of equitable uh, subordination is really a, a policy or a, uh, a, a protocol or issue borrowed from the USA, which has a developed notion of equitable subordination in its statute under, the, under Chapter 11. And basically it means that uh, debts of equal value or claims of equal value within an insolvency can be rearranged. One can be crammed down below the other by the court if the claimant making that claim has acted in a fashion which has been, um, I guess, inconsistent with its obligations, fraudulent, inequitable, wrong, and that action and behavior has prejudiced the other party. So the, so that's what we hope to um, to do and argue in front of Mr. Justice Morowitz that the target internal debt should be deprioritized uh, under the doctrine of uh, equitable subordination. And we point to the behavior of Target uh, during the period of time between October and December 2014 when they knew that they were exiting from Canada, when they knew they were going to get bankruptcy protection, and when most importantly they knew they would not be paying for this product and ultimately using the supplier's own inventory to pay themselves. And that's the inequitable behavior we will be looking at and pointing to when we make that argument before the court. And I should say that uh, before we go further, this, this argument uh, is, is not novel in Canada. Uh, it has been applied in several cases already, and I believe that the facts in Target are, are specific and attractive enough for Mr. Justice Morowitz to, uh, to use this concept to, uh, uh, to deprioritize the Target debt. Yeah, it sounds like inherent in the description of of the doctrine is that it's not to be applied to every circumstance where there is a, uh, for example, an intercompany debt. It sounds like it would be, uh, there would have to be the right facts there in order for a court to to bring this weapon to bear. It is, in fact, a fact-driven, I guess, application or test. One of the other facts that, uh, that I didn't mention is whether or not there was sufficient disclosure of that debt at the initial filing. There are other lawyers who believe that Target failed to make sufficient disclosure of the existence of that intercompany debt, and that, and that itself uh, should have been enough. But together with the other uh, uh, facts uh, would be enough to give the court that equitable jurisdiction. Okay, and, and again, before we leave this, uh, this topic, you've used cram down. Are we going to try to introduce that as a legal, official legal term, <laughs> cramming down of debt? I don't know. It has a certain ring to it. Maybe we'll try it. It's that or deprioritization. Either one. One of them is easier to say than the other. So the second um, area is the, the substantive consolidation. Uh, again, what is this? How are we going to use it? And is this something that we see in Canada? Substantive consolidation has more of a foothold in the, in the jurisprudence than uh, equitable subordination. Both of them are, are, are there and both of them are to be applied. Substantive consolidation is not quite as exciting. It's, it's a more of a financial uh, application than it is a legal one. And that fundamentally what the courts will say is uh, the, the debtors uh, or the claimants who claim amongst themselves are really one enterprise and should be treated by the courts as one enterprise. Their financial um, statements and their financial assets and liabilities should be consolidated as one uh, and uh, they should be treated as one. And uh, there's a number of tests to be applied. For instance, uh, are they in the same business? Do they have same ownership? Do they use the same assets to carry on that business? Uh, and I, you know, our position clearly is that uh, PropCo and Target uh, were 
operating together to operate as a, a Target store. Propco supplied the fixturing, Target supplied the inventory, and together they operated as a Target store, both owned by Target Corporation. So I think we fit the test. The key, of course, is that once the uh, financial assets and liabilities are consolidated, the intercompany debt disappears, and there is no more in- intercompany debt. And I think that might be a, a, an easier way to get to where we want to without having to introduce, uh, without the court having to make adverse findings as against Target. All right, uh, Lou, thank you very much. Now, before I let you go, though, um, because you did say substantive consolidation, uh, that means it's time to go to our listener mailbag. Um, I do have a question here from Karen, who is a bankruptcy lawyer down in New York. Uh, I've been following the uh, Target uh, proceedings off and on. Um, and her question is, what has what has happened in Target to date, from your perspective as, as a lawyer for uh, unsecured creditors? Um, what has this taught us for the next time that a, a um, CCAA proceeding like this happens? I believe that what we've learned from this exercise is that the unsecured creditors have to be vigilant Uh, that notwithstanding the size, the reputation, um, and the history of an enterprise that they sell on credit to, a Canadian store or a Canadian business is different than the U.S. business, and that the success of the U.S. business doesn't necessarily translate into the Canadian business, and that the U.S. business has the right and obligation to wash its hands of the responsibility of funding and continuing to finance the operations of the Canadian enterprise. One of the big problems that that the creditors and suppliers had in Target was that they were never shown uh, separate financial statements for the Canadian operation, and hence nobody knew how bad Target Canada was doing when they were supplying product. They didn't know they were bleeding red ink to the extent that uh, it, it ended up being because of the consolidated statements. So one of the things creditors should ask in the future is to, st- is to see financial statements for the Canadian entity and not just accept the consolidated statements. Okay, thanks. Just to close out the circle then and the, uh, the War of 1812 reference, we're hoping that Justice Morowitz in the next couple of weeks or months imposes something a little bit more favorable than the Treaty of Ghent. Let's hope so, Chad. All right, thanks for coming in, Lou. Thanks for having me, Chad. Okay, Lou, we've brought you back in. We've got some late-breaking news. We understand that the unsecured suppliers are now seeking to examine the CEO of Target Corporation in the States, Brian Cornell. You're spearheading that charge. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners why you're doing that? It seems like a bit of a gutsy move. Well, Chad, it was necessitated as a result of the answers we received to the court-mandated questions we delivered to Target at the beginning of March of 2015. The court authorized us to inquire of Target as to when it knew that it was going to exit Canada and obtain bankruptcy protection. The answers we got back was that it was essentially the members of Target Corporation that knew everything as early as the summer of 2014. The answers went on to say that these individuals at Target Corporation were required to sign non-disclosure agreements so that the information regarding the exit from Canada would not be uh, disclosed to other members of Target, uh, particularly the employees of Target Canada. So in essence, the entire decision to exit Canada and all the factors that were considered was done at the parent company level. Brian 
Cornell is the CEO of Target Corporation and would have the most knowledge as to when Target knew what it did and when it decided to implement its strategy. And as a result, he is the most natural person to examine on this issue. That's intriguing, Lou. Um, Fascinating developments up to the minute on this podcast. Uh, That's all we have for you today. But before we do leave, we should mention you have a a website devoted to the Target insolvency. Can you tell us about the, uh, the URL for that and where people can go? Lenny McMurtry has developed a site specific for the uh, target insolvency and uh, to assist uh, the stakeholders in the target insolvency. You can find it on the web at blaney'stargetccaa.com. I'll repeat it. It's blaney'stargetccaa.com. There you can find also our blog that we regularly update, and we will, of course, be posting our podcast on that site together on the usual blaneywithmercury.com backslash podcast site. Fantastic. Thank you very much. 